You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. Started. I'm pleased to welcome all of you uh, to our, our Krika lecture. And our speaker today is Max Chester, who is a UW grad. He reminded me it's been 20 years since he graduated. <laughs> Seems like yesterday. Uh, and then back in the day, he was my research assistant, and uh, we were still talking about our project and uh, what we were working on. Um, but since then, he went on to uh, law school at Marquette and a long career at uh, Foley and Larger, where he's now uh, a litigation partner. Um, and he's going to tell us a little bit about the, the ways in which his practice intersects with, with our region. Um, but now I will turn it over to Max for the uh, topic of Beyond Policy, the Practical Realities of Russia, Ukraine, U.S., Commercial Transactions and Litigation. Thank you, Professor Hamley, and thank you for having me back. I'm surprised uh, not for sending my research uh, assistance to you 20 years ago that I was invited back. So it's... Uh, it's uh, you wait long enough, everything will happen. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> And um, uh, thank you to all of you for coming and, and um, lis- listening to, to, my, to my presentation on the practical aspects of uh, my experience representing uh, clients in various transactions and settings uh, in, in the former USSR, and then also representing them in, in, in the US, uh, as you probably can tell. You know, from hello, I have an accent. I, I, um, I was born in what is now Kazakhstan. Uh, my father was a, a doctor in the military, in the, in the Soviet military, and uh, he was stationed in uh, what is called Baikonur, which is the equivalent of the Cape Canaveral, the launching site for the you know, Soviet and, to this day, Russian uh, space program. So he was in charge of examining you know, astronauts, uh, cosmonauts in, in Russia uh, before and after the flights, and that's where I was born. Unfortunately, he died when I was uh, very young, and so my mom uh, took my older brother and me to a town in Ukraine, which was just uh, uh, located six hours by train from my paternal grandparents in Belarus and my maternal grandparents in Moldova. Uh, so I grew up in, in, in Soviet Ukraine, just experienced in you know, one year or so the independent Ukraine, and then we immigrated to the U.S. in 92 and um, came to Milwaukee. I uh, graduated from high school in Milwaukee and then went to Madison for my undergrad uh, and then went to Marquette uh, Law School and have been with uh, Foley and Lardner uh, in the litigation practice uh, ever since 2001. And um, you know, my practice is kind of a three-legged stool, if you will. Uh, and, and a lot of people like, like to you know, branch out into different areas. Uh, and part of my practice, obviously, commercial litigation as the base. Uh, but over the years, I started specializing in reinsurance which is basically a contractual arrangement between an insurance company and the reinsurer. And then uh, when FCPA began to be enforced, as it has been uh, vigorously in the last you know, 10 years or so, FCPA is a Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. It's a U.S. statute that was passed in the uh, 1970s and really was dormant uh, for many, many years until the uh, mid-2000s. And, and I will talk about that in, you know, uh, as part of my presentation because there is a lot of interaction between Foreign Corrupt Practices and, and, and Russia and Ukraine in the former USSR. Uh, but it basically prohibits uh, US companies and others who are subject to that uh, law 
from bribing foreign officials, and uh, in a nutshell. And so, uh, knowing the Russian and Ukrainian and the, you know Soviet culture, if you will, where there's you know plenty of corruption yeah. even <laughs> to this day, um, and being fluent in the language, you know, I developed that practice area as well. And I have traveled to uh, Ukraine and Russia and Kazakhstan uh, for FCPA-related uh, assignments over the years. And then the third part of my practice uh, is representing uh, Russian-Ukrainian uh, clients uh, in uh, various matters in the United States, and then also representing U.S. companies in, uh, in the various matters uh, in, in Russia and Ukraine. I am not licensed to practice law in either Russia or Ukraine. So uh, when I have an assignment you know, for a U.S. client, I usually you know, deal with uh, a local lawyer, and I'll talk about that in a second uh, as well. But understanding what U.S. clients expect of their lawyers, how they expect them to uh, answer questions, and understanding the language and, and, and the culture over there allows me to be a, uh, a liaison, if you will, to make sure that our U.S. clients are represented well, that their questions are answered uh, obviously correctly, but efficiently and, and, uh, and fully. So that's been my practice uh, at Foley Lardner in the last uh, 17 years. And, um, I'll, I'll, I'll touch on those, uh, on, on all of those, you know, points in my, in my presentation. I mean, obviously, my views, you know, uh, expressed in this talk are my own. They don't represent necessarily the views of uh, my partners in the firm uh, or the firm at large or other clients. Uh, and um, I, I hope you will you will take that you know, for what it's worth. Obviously, as the title of the, the talk says, it's beyond policy. And I'm not going to talk about you know, policy from either side of the Atlantic, you know, from the Russian side, or now Ukrainian side, or the U.S. side. But it's impossible not to discuss Russian practice or Ukrainian practice in today's environment without you know, touching upon uh, what is going on uh, in the geopolitical uh, arena between the, the governments, if you will. I think it has certainly affected uh, you know, my practice. Uh, there's less inbound Russian-Ukrainian, uh, well, certainly less Russian inbound uh, practice in the U.S. Uh, since 2014. I think there is a little bit more of the U.S. outbound practice in Ukraine for various reasons that I will discuss. But there's no question that you know, policy, policy effects, you know, uh, practicalities. I mean, in my experience generally, I think if you talk to Russian commercial entities and, and Russian uh, players, the United States has always been a difficult place to do business, and really not a place you know for them to go to for their you know commercial commercial things. You will every once in a while hear about uh, you know trophy buys like uh, Prokhorov's purchase of an interest in the you know, basketball team, uh, New Jersey uh, Nets, which Russians call you know New Jersey Babushkas uh, at one point uh, very fondly. <laughs> Uh, you can you know, hear about you know, trophy purchases of apartments in New York you know, City, you know, uh, upwards of you know, $100 million for the daughter of uh, one of Russian uh, businessmen, Mr. Rybolovdiv. But, but generally speaking, the United States has been a difficult place for Russian uh, uh, players, let's you know, call it this way, to do business. And I think part of it is, uh, uh, well, I think the main part of it is Russians recognize that in the United States it's really difficult to get double-digit returns on their investments, you know, quickly, that, um, you know, this is a, a developed e economic um, environment where, you know, it's, it's a steady growth as opposed to, you know, something that you can get double-digit returns, you know, which is 
which is what Russian uh, businessmen, you know, a lot of a lot of times expect. Also, it's time difference. It's also distance, uh, and then we just have too many laws, too many regulations, and uh, Russian players sometimes don't like that. They like a little bit, you know, less of that. <laughs> at the same time, you know, if you look at the you know Russian outbound you know practice of outside of Russia, I mean, certainly a lot of that is concentrated in London. Uh, I think a lot of it is historical. They like uh, the English system. Uh, they like the English court enforcement of uh, contractual obligations. Uh, and it's only four hours uh, flight from, from Moscow, Damodedovo airport to Heathrow. Uh, a lot of times, you know, people in Russia, you know, during my visits will say that it's, it's longer to take, you know, to be in Moscow traffic from one place to another than it's take, you know, flight from Moscow <laughs> to, uh, to Heathrow, and then sometimes they're right. <laughs> so America has been a difficult place, you know, for Russians to do business. You know, you, if you look at the number of the Russian companies listed on the U.S. stock exchange, it's, uh, it's, it's far, it's, it's, it's very few. You have Yandex, you have the American depository receipts uh, for, you know, Lukoil and a couple of other companies, but, but most of them are in London, they're not in the United States. After 2014, I think there's been even less, you know, Russia practice in the United States. In, in, my, in my experience, obviously, the, the U.S. <clears throat> and European sanctions have put a damper on U.S. activities. In, in Russia nowadays, I think the law may be changing every single day, and it's really difficult to keep up. Uh, you know, what are the Russian companies on the, on the SDM list, which basically prohibits any U.S. person from having any commercial activity uh, with a Russian entity uh, designated uh, on that list? There are also territorial sanctions. You cannot do any business, you know, with any, any anything, you know, Crimea. There are also, you know, sectoral sanctions dealing with mining and, and, and oil and, and, and other areas. So. It is, it is becoming a difficult place for U.S. companies to do business from the sanction standpoint. But nevertheless, you know, companies continue to do business, and um, uh, they just have to be you know, very careful, and they have to you know, mind, mind the field, if you will. At the same time, I think there's an uptick that I see uh, in the Ukraine-related uh, uh, practice. I was in Ukraine uh, last October, and uh, the agricultural sector is booming. I mean, there's a lot of export of Ukrainian uh, produce to Western Europe, and with that comes the necessity to buy agricultural machinery and equipment for Ukrainian firms, and so they enter into contracts with the U.S. You know, companies that specialize in, in the manufacturing of those items. So I, I see that as a booming as a booming area going forward. With that comes the you know franchising and the distributorship arrangements and other things that that were lacking, I think in Ukraine even five years ago. So. It's an ever-changing, you know. It, it's 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 an ever-changing environment, uh, but right now it's difficult, you know, because of the sanctions uh, in in Russia. I think I'll talk about the outbound work. So by outbound work, I mean representing a U.S. Com company client uh, in anything in, in in Russia or Ukraine. I, I think I mentioned uh, this already, and this is true for even U.S. practice. You know, when you are practitioner in New York and you're trying a case in Alabama, you better get a local lawyer because otherwise, you know, you, it's going to be very, very difficult for you. The cultural change, you know, cultural differences uh, are profound, even, even, even today. So anytime, anytime I have a situation with a U.S. client that wants something done in, in Russian Federation or in Ukraine, I, I turn to uh, a number of lawyers uh, that I've developed relationships with over the years and ask them, you know, to uh, you know to opine on the matter, to to answer, uh, to uh, to help with the situation. And I think one of the important um, 
cultural differences and, and kind of differences between the Russian practice and the US practice is the role of lawyers. Uh, and I think uh, here clients certainly have expectations when, and they know how to choose a lawyer or they know how to find one or at least have some, some understanding. Uh, in that part of the world, in my experience, there are so many well, a, there are too many lawyers. If, they, if, you think we have, if you think we have many lawyers, they have many, many more. I, I, I had dinner with my uh, high school classmates in Ukraine on, on the last visit, and I think out of the class of 30, we'll probably have like 20 lawyers, you know, people who have you know, law licenses to practice law in Ukraine. None of them really do, uh, and none of them really know how to represent clients. Uh, a lot of them, at best, they become notary publics, you know, which is a big deal. In the Russian and the Ukrainian, you know, setting to become a notary public that basically gives you a stamp, and without a stamp, you know, a lot of the documents are really not not not, not valid. Um, but but a lot of lawyers, when selecting a right lawyer, is is a, is a very important is a very important point for uh, a U.S. client doing business in that part of the world. Several years ago, I had um, a big matter uh, for a Ukrainian company client, and I will talk about that in a bit. And I was told that uh, this was before 2014, um, and uh, I was told that you know bribing a judge in Ukraine was no longer you know fashionable. You know everyone bribes judges, and that's 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 understandable. Bribing the lawyer for the other side, now that's 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 really if you can do that, that 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 really that really is important. And and and, and I've heard you know from multiple people that that was that was the practice, and I and I. And I couldn't believe that for a second, you know, but for the other issues of you know fiduciary duties and everything else, I mean that that was that was the, the that was the practice. A lot of lawyers, you know, were really. Uh -oh. <laughs> Did I say something bad? <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Poroshenko, I apologize. Things are great in Ukraine. I'm sorry. A lot, a lot, a lot of lawyers, uh, you know, really don't practice law. They just you know transfer money from one place to another, and it's really important to find the right lawyer. The typical projects that I've been involved with representing US clients in that part of the world were non-litigation uh, projects, though. They were commercial, transactional in nature. And um, I, I'm not a transactional lawyer, but I know how to read the contract, I think, and, 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 and to help uh, advise a client on putting one together with the help of the local lawyer. In a typical, typical situation would be a US manufacturing client is entering into a uh, distributorship uh, relationship with with a local company or a supply agreement, and you know you are presented with uh, uh, with uh, with a contract in which you are asked to opine. Obviously, there are some provisions that you need to have uh, clearance from local lawyers, you know, that to make sure that they are not in violation of the local law. But a lot of a lot of contracts uh, that I've experienced, you know, for U.S. commercial entities and, and the drafts that are presented uh, by, by by Russian or Ukrainian counterparts don't have a choice of law provision, for example, don't have a, um, uh, uh, don't have a dispute resolution provision, and, and I think that's important. And, and coming from a talk about arbitration, you know, uh, just, just an hour or so ago, I think it's really, really important, in, in, my, in my opinion, with dealing with international transactions to have an arbitration clause, because it's much easier to enforce an arbitral award, even in a place like Russia and Ukraine, versus enforcing a U.S. judgment in the Russian or Ukrainian court, uh, and, and vice versa. If you're a U.S. company and you're faced with a Russian uh, court uh, decision, that's a handle. I'm sure you know, might just say that you know those those a lot of those judgments are valid and not subject to uh, to any attack. But I think, generally speaking, 
uh, the courts in the United States will view a Russian court judgment with some degree of um, a skepticism uh, versus an arbitration award, which, which is easier to enforce because of the New York uh, Convention to which Russia, Ukraine, and many other countries in that part of the world are signatories. Of interest to U.S. Uh, commercial players in the, in, in the contract with the Russian uh, counterparty is a provision requiring you know, bank details. You know, uh, a, lot of, a lot of the Russian transactions dealing with exports of goods or transactions uh, where the payments are in, uh, in uh, foreign currency require a passport for the transaction. I don't know how many of you are familiar with that concept, and you basically have to document your contract with the local banking uh, uh, authority to, to explain you know, what that's all about. And to a U.S. counterparty to provide right away you know, banking detail, your you know, routing number, your bank information, your account number, the name of the bank, the account name, everything else, they're like, hey, what's going on? I say, don't worry about this. Is, this is fine. This is this is just normal practice. But this is this is a cultural difference. I think that a lot of U U.S. commercial entities don't understand and don't recognize when they enter into transactions with with, with the Russian parts. One interesting aspect um, of the transaction, and and I found that obviously um, Russia and Ukraine uh, is very uh, document you know driven, uh, and and a lot of a lot of a lot of the companies. A lot of the contracts will say that uh, you know, entity A is entering into this contract through person Ivan Ivanovich Ivanov or something like that, acting through a power of attorney given to him or her by the Slaughter Republic, you know, duly registered and all of that. And some of them, some of the Russian and Ukrainian counterparties demand similar uh, authority or similar uh, justification of authority from a US from a US person who signs the contract on behalf of a US entity. And that's another another thing that that's really strange to U.S. clients that I found over the years that they're saying, "What are you talking about? Why do we need to pass a resolution from our board of directors appointing, you know, a, a manager of the company or a vice president of marketing or something like that to enter into this contract? The authority is given by virtue of of the position of the person in the firm." And and I've had deals that basically went sour and and were not consummated because because people could not recognize that. Russians require something like that because, because again, from experience, I think every contract provision, uh, one would say, is there for a reason that there was something in the, in the practice that that, that uh, required something like that. There are cases uh, in the U.S. Uh, where the authority of the person to enter into a contract was uh, was challenged in the absence of a you know notarial uh, notary public's documents or something like that. So. If you're a U.S. commercial entity entering into a contract with a Russian and, and certainly Ukrainian counterparty as well, be prepared for some, uh, you know, some documentary issues like that, which may not necessarily be present in U.S. contractual arrangements. Well, I, I think that that shows that, in my experience, a lot of, a lot of times, you know, form over substance, you know, dominates uh, in, in putting together contracts, you know, with with, uh, with Russian or Ukrainian counterparts. I had a situation where we represented a U.S. entity that was selling its Russian subsidiary uh, to another Russian company. So this was a stock purchase transaction, and the subsidiary uh, declared the dividend to pay to the U.S. parent. So when when the sale uh, when the sale uh, uh, concludes, that the U.S. Uh, parent receives you know the cash from the subsidiary. The buyer was aware of that. The seller was aware of that. The directors of the U.S., the Russian subsidiary, were aware of that. 
but it was not documented in the, in, in the formal document. And, and the money was sitting in an escrow account, uh, several million dollars, uh, and, and the Russian now owner of this entity refused to release the funds, saying that there is not a formal uh, resolution by the board of directors of the subsidiary you know, authorizing this dividend. And, and we said, we can backdate it. This, this is not a you know, securities uh, 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 action you know, which prohibits you know, backdating, for example, with stock options or something like that. This is something that you can backdate because everyone was aware of this, of this dividend taking place as of a certain period of time. Everyone was aware of that. Everyone was in agreement. And they said, no, we, we, just, we just cannot do that. If we, are, you know, we are examined by the banking authorities or the tax authorities, we're going to be in trouble. And, and, and uh, I'm not sure how that uh, issue resolved itself. It did not resolve uh, you know, with us because the conclusion was by Russian counsel that yes, you cannot, you cannot backdate uh, and, and create a resolution you know, backdating it to when the decision was made because that's, that's, that was prohibited by, by Russian law. And I, and I found that you know, kind, of, kind of bizarre, but that, that, was, that, was, that, was, that was the conclusion. So a, a lot of times, as, as I mentioned, you know, having having a formal seal, a notary, or having a seal of a company, uh, is, is very very important. And 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 if you don't have a seal, then then the document may be subject to attack by by the Russian counterparties. You know, obviously, I don't know how many of you have heard of uh, Bill Browder and, and the Magnitsky Act and, and what happened in that situation. I, I was not involved in the case in, in any shape or form. You know, from my reading of it, I, I understand that uh, certain companies. Which Browder's you know, fund, Hermitage Capital, invested, the seals of those companies were stolen uh, or misappropriated, and then those seals were used to provide some documents to the tax authorities to receive to receive the tax credits. And then when the tax authorities realized that the, the tax credits should not have been paid properly, then there was a demand for a refund, but the money was long gone, and that that started uh, that started everything. And when Mr. Magnitsky uh, I guess found out about that, um, that that situation. You know, he 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 reported to the authorities, and and uh, you know, from Magnitsky and Browder's you know, well, Browder's standpoint, Mr. Magnitsky is dead, unfortunately. You know, the Russian authorities were involved in basically stealing the seals of the company, uh, falsifying the documents with the seal, receiving the tax credits, and then uh, and then re receiving the funds, and yeah. But, but just the concept of having a seal and not have, you know, if you don't have a document, you know, if you have a document, a contract without a seal, that some people will say that's not a formal, that's not a, that's not a valid contract. And, and, you know, for U.S. commercial players to understand that is kind of not, not, not really, you know, second nature to them. They, they think you've got to, you know, what, what's the point of a seal? You can, you can, you can, you know, falsify it. But um, uh, a, a lot of, a lot of contracts, you know, and we have, Five seals on the on the on the shareholder on the shareholder list, or ten seals, then basically that that's a better document than having one seal. I, I could never understand that, but you know, people make that argument. So, from from creating uh, one other you know typical typical uh, uh, assignment, if you will, or, or you know what experienced in practice, a U.S. company will say we'd like to start operations in in, in Russia. We'd like to open a representative office. A legal entity and, and um, do business that way, as opposed to you know via sales rep or a distributor. And the, the process of setting up an office uh, in, in Russian Federation and everything that's 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 um, 
ancillary to that is just way too cumbersome for, for a lot of US players. A lot of Russians that I've talked to say it's so difficult to open a small business to set up a company, and, and this is really a hindrance to the economic development, uh, they will say, in, in the country, because there's so many bureaucratic steps that you have to take, and every step of the way to, to get the company, to get the licenses, to get the permits, you know, requires you know, some trip to your bureaucratic office, and it can be shut down if, um, if you don't have the right, if you don't have the right uh, inspection, you know, from the from the entity that inspects your your you know water main or you know your your other facilities and every step to every inspector like that, there is an opportunity for a corrupt payment and and unfortunately that's that's the reality that that clients deal with. But to open up a company, you know, the typical quote we we get is in the tens of thousands of dollars from from Moscow Council and this is not necessarily um, you know a large law firm but a reputable firm that, that will do the right the right job but it requires opening an office it requires appointment of a Russian uh, Russian national director or general manager it requires opening up bank accounts requires opening up uh, other other accounts with uh, with other organizations you know to pay social taxes and everything else the process is just too way way too cumbersome and on the other hand when Russian nationals or Ukrainian nationals you know call and say well what will it take to open an LLC or a corporation in the United States? And I'm like, well, it's not going to take more than you know half an hour of work, if, if that. You can just go on WDFI.org and open up an LLC, and, and, and that's it. And this is this is really a big, big cultural difference in, in, in practice and in the commercial transactions. You know, the the speed and efficiency with which it's done here versus you know versus versus over there. By the same token. Shutting down operations uh, in, in 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 those in those countries requires a lot of steps as well. In the U.S., you typically you know you can prepare documents you know uh, to uh, to close a company down and uh, you know file a notice to the creditors and, and follow the, the local uh, law for doing that and file your final you know, tax return. In Ukraine, uh, we had a situation where a, a non-governmental entity operating in the eastern Ukraine region one. Uh, after, after 2014, wanted to shut down its operations. It took it took several months to do that because we needed to understand the local lawyers, you know, whom I trust. They're they're, they're trustworthy, good, competent counsel. But they said we need to understand the form in which the company was doing business. Was it really a sales rep office, or was it really a, a separate entity? How did they pay tax? How did they, you know, how did they file the social, you know, taxes for employees and everything else? It's it's really. It, it, it's, it's really, really a difficult process, an cumbersome process. An, another, another example of outbound uh, work uh, in Russia and Ukraine is, is again, as I said, you know, some sort of a um, commercial delivery. And my experience, nothing is easy. I mean, to your point, why can why can't you just, you know, receive the product in this terminal and ship the product from this terminal, you know, over there? No, it's never like that. I mean, my, one of my favorite movies, you know, uh, Office Space, and they say, like, what do you do here? Well, I take, you know, stuff from the engineers and I deliver that to, uh, to the customer service. Well, why can't they talk to each other? Well, because they have good people skills, you know, same, same in Russia and Ukraine. You've got to have, you know, some sort of an expediting company and then some sort of a logistics company and then some sort of a, a transportation company, and all of those companies will have an agreement and so just recently we had a situation where a U.S. client, a manufacturer of agricultural equipment, was delivering that equipment uh, on, a, on a prepaid basis, you know, the equipment was paid for, 
to a port in Ukraine, and then the customer could not just pick up the equipment directly. Instead, they needed to appoint some sort of a logistics company, and then there was some sort of contract that they required with the logistics company and with the customer and everything else. And, and you know, FCPA being part of the practice, every time you see something like that, every time you see agents, you know, getting in the middle of a commercial transaction and being paid along the way, you say, like, what exactly, what kind of service are you exactly providing in this situation? <laughs> because every time you don't know whether that entity is going to be controlled by a government official and therefore be, you know, payment to that official, you know, might be considered as a, as, as a corrupt payment. Not, nothing is easy. Nothing is easy. Um, this may be true for U.S. practice as well, but um, if you have a judgment against uh, a, a Ukrainian, this is a recent example, so I'll use Ukraine, but I think in Russia it's no different company, you know, good luck enforcing the judgment in, in, in those courts. I, I think it's really, 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 really difficult. And one aspect that I even found um, unique, but, but it's, it's prevalent in Ukraine, and we've used it a couple of times, is what they call the quasi-criminal proceedings. So you have basically a commercial matter. You have a commercial uh, dispute in the U.S. Uh, with the Ukrainian entity uh, or someone who then subsequently moved to Ukraine. The judgment debtor, let's say, is in Ukraine. This is a purely commercial dispute uh, where money is owed, nothing else to it. And then you can't really collapse because the assets are encumbered in Ukraine you know, with mortgages or, or there are you know, a myriad of other creditors, what have you. How do you collapse? And I think there is a procedure, a protocol in, in Ukrainian practice where they start a quasi-criminal proceeding where the, basically the equivalent of a district attorney has the power to summon the debtor uh, to answer questions about the transactions that the debtor did with its assets and how the debtor disposed of those assets, and if there are you know, any fraudulent conveyances or anything like that, that can be cited as a, as a criminal matter. And, and I, I've heard of the similar practice in India, and, and it's, it's, it's used in Ukraine as well. So whatever they need to find under the you know, local criminal you know, practice to institute a criminal proce proceeding, mm -hmm. but, but you have the power to basically involve the state and, and, and its criminal uh, criminal authority, uh, its enforcement authority to, to, to aid you as, 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 a, as a judgment creditor in, in, in uh, enforcing on, on the assets. You know, U.S. companies find that you know, really remarkable. I, I, I do as well, but that procedure exists. Well, enough about the outbound work. Let me tell you about the inbound work, an interesting <laughs> case I had uh, basically from 2010 until 2014. We represented a Ukrainian pharmaceutical company in federal and state courts uh, in, in California. And for someone who, who is from that part of the world, who speaks the language and, and everything else, this was a, an litigator. This was a dream case. I mean, this, you know, one of, you know, these cases come very infrequently. And uh, this was a very interesting company. A company uh, started in the early 1990s by an oncologist. and. Um, uh, his friend, who is uh, uh, he was a professor of uh, um, chemistry in, in uh, Donetsk University. So, uh, just to set up the picture for you, early 90s Ukraine, uh, you know, really, really difficult to get anything, and the oncologist basically doesn't even have chemotherapies for treating, you know, his patients. So he asks his uh, uh, chemistry professor to cook some of the chemotherapies, not not a new substance, but an existing substance, but just instead of buying it on, a, on, on the foreign markets, to basically prepare it uh, in, in the laboratory in, in, in Ukraine, in Donetsk, and in the process so he could treat his patients. Uh, and in the process of doing that, they came up with a new method of preparing this um, 
active pharmaceutical ingredients. I learned more about the you know biochemistry in that case than I ever cared, but it, interesting stuff. Um, so in, in in the course of you know that work, they they came up with a new method to prepare active pharmaceutical ingredient, which is the main component of any uh, any medicine. Uh, and you know if the process before existing process was you take 100 grams of the raw material, you cook it, and you get you know five grams after seven days. They came up with a process where you know you take 100 grams of the same raw material, you cook it for you know one and a half days, and you get 70 you know 70 grams of the you know the, uh, API. So really really big efficacy. And uh, in that process, they basically this is how the company started. They basically needed um, they needed the facilities to manufacture the API and everything else. Well. It was really difficult, if not impossible, for a Ukrainian company at the time to buy machinery and equipment and everything else required to formulate and, and prepare active pharmaceutical ingredient and to sell it, you know, uh, in places where you know those countries and those customers require FDA approval of the facility or something like that. So they decided that they needed an agent outside of Ukraine to basically help them with uh, purchases of equipment and everything else. And I find that. If you, deal, if you look at the commercial transactions from the early 90s in, in Russia and Ukraine, this was a very, very common way of doing business. You have a Ukrainian entity that sets up a financial uh, agent of some sort in an offshore jurisdiction. Offshore doesn't have to be a tax haven like uh, Island of Man necessarily or, or, or the Caribbean. It can be just the United States, but something outside of Ukraine, something outside of Russia. And so that entity would then help buy the stuff and then, uh, and then uh, help with the delivery back to Ukraine. And, and certainly there was um, a tax minimization aspect to it. I, I don't want to use the word scheme because in, in Russian the word scheme translates into something nefarious and, and this, this really wasn't. Uh, but a lot, of, a lot of companies back in the day operated in this fashion. They would uh, basically set up uh, the manufacturing, the production would be in Ukraine and let's say you have a U.S. Uh, agent that buys the product at you know ten dollars you know per per unit, and then resells to a end customer in India or an end customer in China or an end customer in Latin America for the true cost of a hundred dollars. So you have the delta of ninety, and so the customer pays to the bank account of the U.S. entity in the United States. They receive they pay ten dollars to the entity in Ukraine. The entity in Ukraine pays tax. On the ten dollars, thus you know minimizing the you know the tax uh, for for the Ukrainian government, uh, if you will, uh, and then you know ninety dollars is sitting in the U.S. and then that ninety dollars is used to buy machinery, buy equipment, and then and then uh, import that into Ukraine. And so these brilliant oncologists and and uh, and, and chemists uh, needed someone like that uh, outside of Ukraine, you know, to do this. So they were recommended by a similar, you know, company, um, you know, two brothers, you know, who live in San Diego, and and, and they were doing similar services, you know, for other uh, other commercial entities in, in in Russia, and they said, yeah, sure, no problem, we'll do that for you, we'll be your agents uh, in, in this fashion. Obviously, nothing is documented in any contracts, uh, at least this basic agency relationship, and the idea was that the U.S. company uh, would basically charge 2% and money is coming in into the bank account uh, in America, then 2%, that's their fee. The remaining you know, 98% is used to buy machinery, pay the Ukrainian and, and everything else. And this is how they were doing business you know, for many, many years. And 
at some point, the, the Ukrainian company decided they wanted to obtain patents on, on, their, on their invention in the United States. And then the, the American company said, well, we are holding billions of your dollars you know, through these commercial activities. Uh, why don't you make one of us, one of the owners of the American company, a uh, inventor on the patent and then the company, and then all of the inventors would assign the patent once it issues to the American company. But don't worry about it. One, you know, if you know, if our relationship sours, we're going to give back to you your patent, like we will give back millions of your dollars that we are holding in your equipment and cash and everything else. Absolutely, why not? They've been doing business like that, you know, for ten plus years. So the U.S. patents issue, uh, they are assigned to the U.S. company, and then. Uh, the same uh, procedures used to uh, receive patents in, in the European Union, in China, in India, all over the world. By that time, the company has 70% of the world market of one uh, API in one class of antibiotics called anthracyclines. I still remember that. That's, that's, that's scary. Um, and and they're, they're doing really, really well. Until the time comes when the relationship uh, sours. And to the point that uh, the U.S. company f feels that you know they perhaps were more than agents. Maybe they felt of, you know felt of themselves as joint venturers or partners. One of my favorite you know words in a, in a commercial law: joint venture. You know exactly what it means. I don't know, but uh, I should take a class from Professor Hamlin. Um, so the U.S. company basically starts sending letters of infringement to the Ukraine manufacturers' clients all over the world, saying by buying this Ukrainian product from this entity, you're infringing on our intellectual property rights because the patents are in the name of the US company. And the Ukrainian company says, what are you talking about? Your IP rights? You know, we are the inventors of, of everything described in this patent. And and you know customers are getting customers are worried, you know, from Germany to China, they don't want to be subject to a lawsuit uh, by by a US company for patent infringement. So the case comes to me, and what do we do? So what, what do we do? Um, as I said, you know, just this is the basic fact pattern. And uh, we, we litigated that case for four years. Uh, the, the company uh, client was located in the city of Donetsk. Uh, and I was in Donetsk in 2012 and in 2013, uh, defending depositions, taking depositions, which is unheard of for, for a Ukrainian practice. Uh, but uh, we did it. It was, it was interesting. And then in 2014, when everything happened, uh, the case at that time was in the middle of a summary judgment uh, proceeding in state court, uh, and we had to settle the case. Um, and unfortunately, the company is, is surviving uh, and, and is trying to survive, uh, not so much commercially, but you know, dealing with uh, uh, dealing with the difficult situation in in Donetsk. But this case presented so many opportunities to learn at the commercial uh, dealings between. <coughs> Ukrainian companies and Russian companies back in the early 1990s all the way through 2000s. And I don't think the practice is as prevalent today as it was back then, but this was a typical way of doing business. You set up a foreign agent and you do everything through a foreign agent. And I don't think we would have been able to achieve the result that we did for the Ukrainian company if we had to litigate this in, in, in Ukrainian courts because I don't think the client you know, really thought that we would be able well, their objective was to basically have freedom of operation. They needed to be declared at least the co-owner of the patents 
or they needed to declare that uh, they were defrauded somehow into assigning their inventions to, to a patent uh, in order to, for them to have freedom of operation or in order for their customers to have freedom of operation. How do you do that when the patent says in black and white that the owner of the patent and the patent is registered in the USPTO in the name of the US company? It, it says in black and white. What do you do? Well, what we did, uh, we filed an action uh, in uh, uh, st state court in California first for fraud, you know, breach of fiduciary duty, uh, you know, book, uh, uh, breach of contract, you know, a, a lot of different things. And we got a lot of counterclaims uh, you know, from the state, you know, from the defendant. Um, and, and the counterclaims, as we proceeded with litigation, became more important than, than, than the main claims for monetary damages that, that we were seeking from this because the defendant presented an exclusive distribution agreement, uh, for example, between the Ukrainian company and the, and the US company. The object of that contract was really not to have an exclusive distribution agreement. This was a mechanism for the Ukrainian company to tell the authorities in case there was, there was going to be a raid on their, on their corporate existence that if you raid us and you take over us, we have an exclusive distributor in the United States and then you're going to be dealing with a United States company, and that creates a different different scenarios, you know, for the U, uh, Ukrainian, you know, authorities than just taking over the Ukrainian manufacturer. And so, how do you prove that? No, you really are not an exclusive distributor when there is an exclusive distribution agreement, which says that if you uh, if you terminate my distribution rights without cause, uh, then you know, I'm entitled, you know, to lost profit damages, you know, for the next you know, 20 years or something like that. So we were in the midst of all of the discovery and everything else in that, uh, in that state court. And then uh, we said, look, it's taking too long. The money is really not what this case is about. We really need freedom to operate. We really need ownership of these patents somehow or to declare these patents invalid. To be honest with you, the, the company in Ukraine was many, many, many years advanced you know, from what was disclosed in the patents. And the patents probably would have been declared invalid you know, on, on a host of uh, you know, theories. But we needed freedom to operate, so we filed an action in federal court uh, in, in, in California as well to try to declare a Ukrainian company to be at least a co-owner of the U.S. patents. And because if you are a co-owner, then the other co-owner cannot sue you for infringement, and you can assign as a co-owner, you can license your technology, your patent invention to whomever you want, and, and those licensees will not be, will not be subject to infringement uh, by other co-owner. And so, talk about you know, difference in practice. Um, obviously, in U.S. litigation, discovery is, is very important, and, and, and uh, U.S. clients understand that you know, they need to produce documents, they need to produce electronic records, everything else. Try to explain that to a Russian company or a Ukrainian company. It, it takes a while you know, to, to, to explain that, because they're like, what are you talking about? We don't have anything. And that's, the first, that's the first response. We don't have anything. And like, well, really, you, you, you have something, you have an obligation by being a, a litigant in the U.S. court you know, to turn over all relevant, responsive, non-privileged information, so let's, let's just move beyond that topic. But uh, oftentimes, you, you will probably find documents that will be helpful to you as opposed to be, being harmful. And, and obviously, as a lawyer, you want to know all of the facts you know, that, that you deal with. So we basically argued in the federal court, we found after years of back and forth with the client, with the other side, we found employment agreements that were uh, signed by 
the main shareholders who were also employees and officers of the company in its, in its infancy, in the early 1990s, employment agreements with the company. And there was a typical you know, provision uh, whereby the Ukrainian uh, employees uh, were assigning all of their inventions to the Ukrainian company. And in the Ukrainian law, uh, in order for an invention uh, developed using the company's facilities and company's equipment and everything else, not to be owned by the company, the employee needs to provide a specific enough notice to the employer saying, I invented this. Are you interested in basically obtaining patent protection on this invention? If you are, it's yours to take and maybe you, nego you negotiate some royalties with an employee, but if, you, if you're not gonna do anything, it's back to me and then I can do with it whatever I want, I can assign it to whomever. But that notice was not specifically given by the Ukrainian employees uh, to the company. And so that was the basis for us to argue that under Ukrainian law, the company, not having received a notice required by Ukrainian employment law, remained at least a co-owner of the invention and therefore the assignment to a U.S. company wasn't so much invalid, uh, but the Ukrainian company was a, at least a co-owner of the patents. And I think in, in a rare decision, a U.S. court for the Southern District of California granted our client summary judgment, uh, basically on, on, on the basis of Ukrainian employment law, recognizing that the Ukrainian company was at least a co-owner of the patent, and with that had freedom to operate. And this was a you know, phenomenal case, and, and there were so many different, different uh, uh, variations to it that um, I, I can talk you know, probably for hours about that case, case, case alone. But it, it's important, well, this, this goes back to you know, Ukraine and Russia being you know, very form-heavy, you know, form you know, uh, countries, documentary-heavy countries. In this instance, it helped us because we found a document, a piece of paper that they did back in 1993 or something like that. It was in the storage boxes I mean, we had we had to go through all of that, but at the end of the day, it was it was it was the right thing to do, and that carried the day. Unfortunately, as I mentioned, um, we were on summary judgment uh, proceedings in, in the state court, you know, with our claims for monetary damages, you know, for fraud and breach of fiduciary duty, for other sides' counterclaims, and the war broke in uh, in, in Donetsk, and uh, we we had to settle. Um, by, but the company has you know, freedom to operate and they're somehow in the process of moving a quarter of a billion dollar FDA approved uh, facility uh, from Donetsk you know, to Germany. Uh, it's, it's, it's really, really, really a difficult you know, exercise, basically. You know, the stories they're telling about you know, their daily, daily life is just, just incredible. I mean, you have, a, you have a, uh, a group of armed people coming into your plant, a plant that, again, they invested a quarter of a billion dollars they have 70% of the world market in one item. And you have a group of people coming in and saying, well, this plant now owned, you know, belongs to us. We are the new owners of this plant. Well, what do you do? Well, you pick up the phone and you call the leader of another you know, armed, you know, armed uh, uh, group and you say, I, I thought you were the owners, or at least you, know, you were co-owners or something like that, so can you, can you figure this out? It's really a difficult situation, and, and to see you know, Donetsk Airport, you know, basically torn to pieces, you know, uh, in basically six months. I was there in late 2013, and then by the middle of 2014, it was it was a war. And uh, you never know, basically, dealing with, you know, countries like Russia and Ukraine that, uh, um, I, I guess, as a U.S. lawyer, you have to account for that as well in your practice. If someone, if someone told me to wager a dollar against a thousand 
in 2013 that there would be a military conflict between Russia and Ukraine, I would have never made that wager. I, 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 it's not fathomable to me that you know, having grown up in that area, knowing the you know, cultural connections between the, 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 the two countries and the peoples and, and all of that, that you know, we are in this you know, frozen conflict. But again, I said this is beyond policy, so we are, we are moving on. Beyond policy, right? <laughs> okay. Um, if you, again, t talking about you know, inbound work to the US, uh, I, I go back to my premise that the US is a difficult place uh, for Russians to do business, and there isn't a lot of it. Uh, you go back to the famous or infamous investments by Severstal, uh, which, which is a large aluminum um, company in the United States, in, in Russia, they bought a lot of aluminum facilities around Detroit and then lost fantastic amounts of money. Uh, and and that, that investment kind of permutates, and everyone you talk in Russia gives you an example that, you know, America is a, you know, is a difficult place to do business, um, which for Russians it is, I suppose, because of the, because of the regulations and laws and, 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 and time difference and the distance and everything else. If you, if you look at the dockets of new cases, you know, filed, in the United States federal courts uh, every week, uh, referencing Russia and Ukraine, and I do that. Uh, a lot of them are basically, in today's environment, you know, political cases alleging something against the Trump administration or against Manafort or something like that. A lot of, uh, not a lot of commercial cases, because there's not a lot of commercial activity uh, with the US being a forum for resolution of those or even uh, you know, places where, you know, uh, Russian uh, or Ukrainian companies do business. Uh, occasionally you have the big big ticket litigation, the famous right now is involving the um, uh, owners or one of the person who claims to be an owner of the TNK company, Kimensk and Yevtenaya Kampania, Mr. Lebedev, uh, who used to be a senator in Russia and then in a typical fashion like my Ukrainian case, it was a handshake agreement that he would be a 25% owner in this company, TNK, uh, with Ms. Mr. Vexelberg and uh, Mr. Friedman and Mr. Blavatnik. And when they sold uh, TNK uh, BP to Rosneft, uh, they, he was not paid, he claims, you know, $800 million you know, for his share and the 25% share in the company. And um, there's a big litigation going on in, uh, uh, in state courts in New York uh, about that agreement. The parties have an agreement on what's it about. But I think this is this is a remnant of how things were done back in the 90s, back in the early 2000s. Not, again, not, not U.S. commercial practice, but in a famous or infamous lawsuit involving uh, Mr. Berezovsky and, and Mr. Abramovich in, in, in London High Court. Obviously, Mr. Berezovsky lost, but I think that, that decision from the, from the High Court, for anyone interested in the Russian commercial practice or Russian you know, way of doing business, you know, with the things like Grisha and what that means and, and uh, Atkat, and, in other words, Grisha basically means, well, it's literal roof, right? But, um, but the, the lawsuit between Berezovsky and Abramovich was that Berezovsky claimed hundreds of millions of dollars uh, from Abramovich. Um, I forgot what the subject company was, but Pirozovsky claimed that he was a part owner in that company and was entitled to dividends and, and other distributions. And, and Abramovich said, you are not an owner. You know, look at the register of the uh, shareholders or anything like that. Your name is not on it. You know, what basis do you have to claim that you're an owner? Well, they, they showed some payments that were made to Pirozovsky back in late 90s, early 2000s from that company or for that company's business. And Pirozovsky claim was that, well, you know, that signifies to you, you know, that I'm the owner and I was receiving dividends back then. 
and Abramovich testified in high court in London that those payments were basically bribes, you know, for lack of a better word, you know, <laughs> for Berezovsky's protection, Krisha, roof, that he was providing to Abramovich with the Yeltsin, with the Yeltsin government you know, when Berezovsky had a lot of clout. So you read that decision, and then still Berezovsky lost uh, that case, notwithstanding the testimony. Uh, I, I, from what I from what I've read, this was a devastatingly difficult decision for him financially, and um, um, he died, I think, within a year. I, I don't want to connect that decision to his death, or uh, again, you know, say who is responsible for his death. But that was a very interesting case, and you read that decision from the High Court of London. Uh, Abramovich that, that gives you a little bit of uh, flavor of the Russian way of doing business at the highest echelons uh, back in the 90s It's very interesting how it took Berezovsky, from what I've read, several years to serve Abramovich, who owns Chelsea Football Club with service of process in London to start the, to start the litigation. And it wasn't until Berezovsky people saw Abramovich and his people shopping in the Hermes store they went there and, and presented them with, uh, with, with the summons, and this is how the, the case started. <laughs> only, only with Russians in London, I guess, that's, that's the thing. I guess I have three minutes, I suppose, uh, to talk about FCBA, which is another big area of, of Russia and Ukraine and Kazakhstan-related practice that I've done over the years. As I said, FCBA stands for Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. It's a U.S. statute that basically prohibits U.S domiciled companies and their offices, directors, employees, agents uh, from bribing foreign officials. And the question is, you know, who is a foreign official? And for many years, there was very little case law uh, in the FCPA world. Uh, and uh, my firm was involved in a pro bono case on behalf of uh, Mr. Uh, Eskenazi uh, in the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, where the Court of Appeals basically established a test to say that uh, an employee of a government-owned entity could be considered a foreign official if there is sufficient control and direction that the company provides and the purpose that the company serves is, is a quasi-governmental uh, uh, service. So if you look at places like China, or you look at places like um, Russia or Ukraine, hospitals and hospital systems and anything in the medical field, a lot of that is owned by the government to this day. And so every employee in that organization under FCPA um, jurisprudence uh, and interpretation by the uh, US, and, uh, U.S. agencies that enforce the law, that is the DOJ and the SEC, they took the position that an employee of a hospital in Russia is a, is a foreign official. So if you make a corrupt payment to that official in order to obtain or retain some sort of a business, and, uh, and you know, I'm not talking about you know, something small, but uh, there's really no, no, no de minimis amount in FCPA. But you know, typical you know, example, you have you know, large pharmaceutical company paying bribes, for lack of a better description, to doctors you know, in order for doctors to prescribe the medication made by that company as opposed to by, by some other company. And so that is a classic FCPA violation. And uh, there's plenty of cases involving and investigations uh, by the companies um, in Russia, Ukraine, you know, Kazakhstan, and if you look at the list, if you look at the list of uh, the largest, well, the list constantly changes, I suppose, but the 10 largest cases um, with FCPA penalties obtained by the DOJ and the SEC, as I said, the law was not really enforced uh, until the mid-2000s, and then something 
you know, there was a switch, I guess, in the DOJ administration, and they started to enforce it. And, and in, in the mid-2000s, FCPA was considered to be the highest priority for the U.S. government in terms of enforcement after fighting terrorism. And, and they now have a separate FCPA unit within the Department of Justice, within the Securities and Exchange Commission, and, and um, lots and lots of resources. Uh, and, and to this day, uh, notwithstanding the you know, Trump administration, um, um, some people say, well, you know, FCPA is dead or something like that. I mean, we can have a separate discussion that I think, I think the law is very much robust, and, and there are you know, plenty of investigations going on. Uh, but out of the 10 largest cases, uh, well, the, up, up until today, the largest case was a Talia company in Sweden with bribes in Uzbekistan uh, to, uh, to, uh, to the daughter of uh, President Karimov. Um, they paid $965 million in 2017 to settle the case. Uh, Siemens, for many, many years, was the largest uh, case from you know, 2008, $800 million in penalties. The third one was, it was a company domiciled uh, in, 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 in the Netherlands, Wimpelcom, but it's a, it's a major Russian uh, mobile uh, telecom. They also paid $795 million in 2016 for bribes also in Uzbekistan. And I was wondering, you, know, you have two companies in the, in the same sector bribing the same family <laughs> on, on a tune of $1.7 billion. I mean, that's, that's, that's great if you, can, if you can do it. I mean, another, another big case in the top 10, Teva Pharmaceuticals uh, paid $519 million uh, in 2016 for bribes uh, to various doctors in Ukraine and Russia and, and elsewhere. One of my favorite in the Russian, Russian FCPA cases is, is dealing with Daimler, Chrysler. Daimler basically had a contract with the Ministry of Interior, MVD, which is the equivalent of the you know, local police, I guess, or, 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 or FBI. And so they paid bribes to those officials who were supposed to police against corruption and bribery in Russia. And, and they basically, you know, a Daimler, Daimler paid, I, I think, on the tune of $100 million for their violations. To this day, there has not been a case brought against those who received the bribes in Russia. And that is, you know, when people think about that, like, you know, what gives? You know, why isn't there a case in Russia against those who received the bribes? FCPA does not address the bribe takers. It addresses the bribe givers. Not an FCPA case, but just recently, well, two, year, two years ago, a uh, colonel in a separate anti-corruption unit uh, in, in, in a, one of the Russian ministries, and there are too many, they found $102 million in cash. $102 million in cash. $100 million and 2 million euros, so maybe a little bit more than $102 million, but this is a person in cash. Can you imagine what, what, what that sum looks like? $102 million. This is a person you know, who is supposed to fight corruption and everything else. So when we talk about you know, FCPA, Russia, and Ukraine, I've done uh, investigations of FCPA violations uh, in Russia, and Ukraine, and Kazakhstan. Uh, a lot of the large US companies that, and, and there's really a culture of compliance, I would say, with the large US companies you know, understanding their risks uh, dealing with uh, corruption around the world. There's a you know, code of conduct in every company, and it's not just, you know, it's not just paper. They actually practice you know, that, and you, know, you, you, you can advise companies how to deal with, you know, with corrupt officials in, in places like Russia and Ukraine and Kazakhstan. And, and again, uh, not enough time you know, to, to, to touch that, but 
uh, if you're interested in you know, Russian practice or Ukrainian practice or you know, practice in that part of the world. And, and uh, I think FCPA is here to stay. I don't think that, um, I don't think it's gonna go anywhere. And in the last 10 years, the US began to enforce FCPA so much and really has been at the forefront of this you know, anti-corruption uh, enforcement around the world that other, um, other enforcement uh, uh, agencies around the world uh, are taking note. The UK passed the UK Bribery Act, I think in 2014 or thereabouts. Just today, the largest FCPA penalty was announced involving Petrobras in Brazil, 1.74 billion. Uh, of that only measly, two, you know, 160 million is gonna go to the US Treasury, but, uh, but the rest is gonna go to the Brazilian authorities. But the point is that if you are, if you are from the US, you know, you're gonna be at the forefront of FCPA enforcement and, and similar anti-corruption measures around the world, and you know, there will be no shortage of that, I think, in Russia and Ukraine for years to come, so. Thanks very much. Mm -hmm.